So we're in Isaiah 18. The topic, Isaiah preaches naked to dramatize the news that Egypt and Ethiopia will be taken captive as slaves. The title of the message, Have I Got Nude for You? Let's pray. Father, the, it's the joy of the Lord that is our strength, and your joy is, uh, that was set before you was, uh, Lord, the salvation of your people. And I thank you, Lord, for myself and each individual here, Lord, and uh, that knows you, that's been saved by you, who's received your grace, Lord, freely, had their sins forgiven and uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray for the one or two or ten or however many that are here this morning that don't know you. They're here for a good reason, Lord, and that is to hear the gospel. That good news that you came, died, rose from the dead, and are coming again. And that their life, uh, Lord, uh, can uh, be saved for time and for eternity. Help us through this text, Lord. We have a lot of ground to cover, and we want to do so uh, honoring your word, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Oh, yes, they call him the streak. Boogity, boogity. Fastest thing on two feet. That's uh, as far as I want to go with that. Ray Stevens' song was number one on the music charts at the height of streaking. In February of 1974, the press labeled it an epidemic. By the first week of March, college campuses across the country were competing to set streaking records. The most memorable streak occurred on national television at the 46th Annual Academy Awards in April. During one of the presentations, Robert Opel streaked naked across the stage of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, flashing a peace sign. Turns out it was not spontaneous, it was planned. I don't know if that takes anything away from it, uh, but um, they planned it. Appearing naked in public has a storied history, including religious protests and warnings. 17th century Quaker Solomon Eccles walked naked through London with a chafing dish of fire burning upon his head, crying, repent. He was doubtless influenced by Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 20. The Lord spoke by Isaiah the son of Amos, saying, Go and remove the sackcloth from your body. Take your sandals off of your feet. And he did so walking naked and barefoot three years for a sign and wonder against Egypt and Ethiopia. Isaiah's nudity was a visual, it says in verse 4, of the king of Assyria leading away the Egyptians as prisoners and the Ethiopians as captives, young and old, naked and barefoot, with their buttocks uncovered to the shame of Egypt. When you saw Isaiah's newsflash, you were seeing Egypt and Ethiopia as naked captives. Um, unbelievers today are naked captives. Jesus told the Laodiceans in the letter he wrote them in the Revelation, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Should we be walking around nude today? No. Why not, Pastor Gene? It should be obvious, congregation. But if you want a biblical reason... Isaiah was dramatizing something that was actually going to happen. He, he did it because the Assyrians, when they captured people, they stripped them naked, did all kinds of terrible things to them, put a hook in their jaw, and drug them literally back to Assyria. And so it was a visual of what was really going to happen. 
it would serve no purpose for you to walk around naked today uh, because that's not what's going to happen. And so if a prophet, I'm not against prop prophets and people acting things out. In fact, in the New Testament, there's a prophet who takes Paul's belt off and wraps his hand and says, this man, you know, whoever has this belt is going to be you know, incarcerated in Rome and all of that, or Jerusalem. And uh, so, you know, we can, I can see that, but the naked thing, no worries. God is not going to ask you to go naked for him. All right, so put that aside. I might ask you to do something worse. No, I'm not kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, so spiritually, however, spiritually, we are told that we bear Christ's reproach. We partake of Christ's sufferings. We share in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we're to fill up in our flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. With the help of God the Holy Spirit, people can see their spiritual captivity and nakedness and their need to be clothed as we are with the righteousness of the sinless Son of God. I'm going to organize my comments around two points. Number one, God has a message for the naked nations. And number two, you are the messenger to the naked nations. Let's take a look at his message first in chapters 18 and 19. We're in a long section in which God reveals his future dealings with nations who are not particularly interesting to us. He mentions Assyria, Babylon, Moab, Damascus, which is in Syria, Ethiopia, and Egypt. Now, as students of the Bible, we have some interest, you know, in these places that most people don't, but, but we're, we don't get all excited, you know. Nobody's ever said to me, hey, come on, that show about the Assyrian Empire is on right now. I, I mean, you know, I, I don't get up in the morning for that kind of stuff. But what if Isaiah was talking about 20th century Czechoslovakia? That still doesn't do it for me, maybe to you. We would likely be uninterested, but that's only because we are not prone to look into the unseen realm and discover God's remarkable providence in dealing with the nations of the world. As Christians, uh, we, we read the Bible and we see God dealing with nations uh, you know, in the past. We don't realize sometimes that he continues to do that in the present, that it's happening right now. Why did I bring up Czechoslovakia? Israel officially became a nation in May of 1948 after the horrors of World War II. They received aid from the strangest combination of nations. And I hadn't heard this before until last week, and when I researched it, it's true. Russian strongman Joseph Stalin supported Israel because he thought the Jewish state was going to be communist because he had heard that they live in these kibbutzims, these communal villages. And he thought, well, communal, communist. Stalin, nobody said he was the brightest lamp. Uh, but uh, he did. He thought for a very brief time, Stalin was in favor of the Jews and, and supported that. And if you read the history of it, I, I didn't get deep, deep into it, but eventually he had weapons sent to Israel when other nations would not arm them including the United States, through Czechoslovakia. How much planning went into that in heaven, right? Seeing the history of the world, seeing the Jews and their persecution and what was happening and all, and to say, hey guys, I got a plan. What is it? You're going to have the United States swoop in like an eagle and help them? No, 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 not at all. I'm going to have Joseph Stalin help them 
through, Yuga, through uh, Czechoslovakia, and then we don't need them to be a nation anymore after that. It's incredible, but it's actually what happened. And it's happening all the time behind human history. And we, we can't always know that until after the fact. Uh, but this is the kind of thing God does. God has different purposes. He has purposed for every nation, but there is one message for all of them. The Savior of the world promised in the Garden of Eden came in the fullness of time through his chosen nation, Israel, in order to redeem and restore his creation and redeem mankind. God provides for his plan by his providence using nations. Whether a nation cooperates or not, God's program will succeed to its completion. And so let's pick up the uh, text in verse 1 of chapter 18. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the water, saying, Go, swift messengers to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. Their motto that they put on the back of their vessels of reed, you know how we label boats, the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is a really poetic way of saying we have a tremendous amount of insects that are intolerable. Uh, you know, it's funny how people, you know, name things as if they're great, and then you get there and it's like, wow, really? Epic description, though, of Ethiopians. They were taller than the Jews, and they were not genetically inclined towards facial hair. That's what this smooth of skin means. doesn't mean they, you know, had skin treatments. They may have, but it's that they couldn't grow facial hair. You remember when you were a kid, and you couldn't grow facial hair, and you tried really hard, and you had three or four hairs coming out, you know? You could shave with tweezers, you know, that kind of thing. I had a kid, John Anderson. This guy, he was in high school as a senior. He had to shave twice a day. I mean, this guy was like Bluto, you know. I mean, it was crazy. And so I'd go home with him for lunch every now and then because I had a car and he didn't. And, and he'd go, oh, I'll be right out. And he's in there shaving, you know, so he doesn't. Anyway, so the Ethiopians, smooth of skin. Uh, everything here said about them is great. They're, they're loyal, fierce. Uh, national patriotism, that kind of thing. Ethiopia had sent ambassadors to Judah. They wanted to form an alliance with them against Assyria. Isaiah said, go away, sending them home treatyless. Verse 3, all inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you'll see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you'll hear it. I love that scene in The Return of the King when Pippin lights the beacon to call uh, Rohan to come and help Gondor. And that's the, actually something that ancient cultures did. Uh, what Isaiah is saying is that God's not, he's not going to light a beacon or put up a banner. He doesn't need that because he doesn't need the aid of nations in that same way. So when we say God uses nations or raises up nations, it isn't that he needs them. It's that he uses them for his glory. And he doesn't need aid. And so he's telling you, hey, you guys go home. I have this Assyrian situation under control. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest and I will look for my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. While nations make their political alliances and backroom diplomacy, God rests and he wants his people to rest with him. They shouldn't be worried about the Assyrians. Now face it, we may well believe the weapons God has provided us are powerful, 
But when it comes right down to it, we are more comfortable with the weapons of the world. And one reason, there are many reasons, but one I was thinking of is that we don't like to appear foolish to people. One thing you have to admit if you read the Bible at all is that character after character after character does, from a worldly standpoint, foolish things. Things that don't make sense in the world. I was talking to somebody this morning about David and Goliath, right? So Goliath is this mammoth Nephilim giant, I'm going to kill you. Nobody wants to fight him. David says, I'm about 15 years old, and man, am I good with a sling. Let's go for it, you know? And so, and we're like, wow. But then we get into a situation, and people use it all the time as an analogy, even non-Christians say, oh, it's like David versus Goliath. Well, yeah, but you don't want to be David, really. You want to use the weapons of the world, and you, you, want, you want to be on at least an equal footing, right? And so uh, you, you, sometimes you're gonna, in the Christian life, you are going to look foolish. And you're going to say foolish things and do foolish things. and people, Not crazy things, you know, but foolish things. And people are going to take you aside and say, well, what's going on here? You, people, you shouldn't do that with your money. You shouldn't do that with your time. This is what you should be doing. Because we, the world wants it to be conformed into its, its image. We're transformed so that we can reach that world for Christ. Verse 5, before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he'll cut off the sprigs and prune it with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. They'll be left together for the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. The birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So he employs two metaphors here to describe the severity of God's dealings with Assyria. He would prune them back all the way, and their carcasses would be food for beasts. Verse 7, in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from the beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts to Mount Zion. Uh, There's a partial fulfillment of this in the book of Acts when an Ethiopian comes to worship the Lord at Jerusalem and then trusts in Jesus at the preaching of Philip and brings the gospel back to Ethiopia. Further out, Isaiah is seeing the millennial kingdom and Ethiopia in that kingdom. Millennial means a thousand years. The Bible teaches that there will be a thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth after the Lord comes in his second coming. He'll take us up with him at the rapture and resurrection. Seven years or so later, we'll come back with him and then we'll establish with him that kingdom. And so Isaiah is seeing that. Nations don't always survive. Czechoslovakia, for example. I don't know its history, but I think it's safe to say that God has his hand of providence on that nation so that they could be available in 1947. Uh, And then now they've moved into a different phase of history with the Lord leading. Verse 9, or chapter 19, the burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud, will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council, and they will consult idols and charmers the mediums and the sorcerers, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. 
Satan constantly tries to infiltrate the church with occult influences and practices. He's gotten pretty good at it over the years. Uh, we could list a whole bunch of different things that he has brought into the church through various means, that some of uh, which are going on today. Grave soaking. You familiar with that term, grave soaking? It's not when the uh, groundskeeper leaves the sprinklers on overnight. Uh, you know, it wasn't like, remember, was it Katrina where the New Orleans, some of the bodies were coming up out of the ground, floating around? And there's Uncle Fred, you know, and stuff. That's not what we're talking about. Grave soaking, also known as grave sucking, this is for real. It is the act of lying across the physical grave of a deceased preacher or evangelist for the purpose of pulling out the residual power of the Holy Spirit, a power that was purportedly trapped within the body upon the person's death. Help me. Did you hear that? Help me. I'm trapped in Pastor Gene's body. He won't let me out. Anyway, uh, Perhaps you've heard of the wildly popular Bethel Church in Reading. Not all of them, but many of them are grave soakers. So, okay. Seems occultic to me. I don't know about you. Uh, it's certainly non-biblical, unbiblical. The Holy Spirit isn't trapped in the dead body of, uh, who died? Charles Stanley, right? Charles Stanley died recently, went to be with the Lord. He isn't, you know, hopefully people aren't soaking his grave. Uh, and stuff. But anyway, so the occult, it's out. There's always going to be that. You're always going to have to struggle with that. The devil really smart, and he somehow gets Christians to believe these things. And they bring division and get us off track, and so be careful out there. The waters will fail from the sea. The river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will either be driven away and be no more. This goes on through verse 10, talking about the river over and over. It would not take much for Egypt to fall from power to poverty because of their dependence on the river. What river? The Nile River. We depend upon electricity. Renowned author and military historian William Forstchen told the Washington Examiner that the blast from an EMP would devastate the United States for years because America's electrical infrastructure is so outdated and ill-equipped to handle the sudden loss of electricity caused by the blast. Some of you remember when they're like, I don't know how many years ago there was that, like the whole West Coast was out of electricity for a while. Do you remember that? Do you, yeah, but do you remember it, right? I, I'm not just making that up. It's not something, yeah. So, and, and so somebody in the church who I trusted, and I don't know if it would have happened this way or anyway, but they said, hey, you know, you should shut the mains off at your, you know, your, you know there's no electricity right now. Shut the mains off. Uh, and all the breakers, and then you bring them back up one at a time because you don't want to blow your system. And I thought, okay, so I did that, and then doing that, I blew my system when the electricity came on. It, the main breaker blew up, and then I was two more days waiting for an electrician to get out, you know, after everybody else had electricity. Uh, and I, I spent that time hunting down that brother uh, <laughs> with a BB gun. No, that's not true. But So uh, now, in a linked article, this is interesting, Intelligence officer said, and when would this ever happen, 
High-altitude balloons are considered a delivery platform for secret strikes on America's electrical grid. Really? High-altitude balloons? It seems like I read about that not too long ago, right? China sent these balloons that are just cruising across the United States. Cruising. We finally shot them down. That must have been... Is that, does that count as a kill for the pilot? Are any pilots here from LNES? Uh, I got my first kill today. What was it? A balloon. <laughs> Man, they're feisty up there. It's hard to... They're moving and shaking and grooving. I took that thing out. They'd give you a new nickname. Balloon Slayer or something. You know, or well, Helium Man or something. Anyway, uh, surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of the ancient? And so this is a, a, a section here, verses 11 through 15. I'm trying to speed things up. 11 through 15, uh, that has to do with giving wrong counsel to uh, different individuals. And look at verse 14. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit. Well, there's a similar incident in 1 Kings chapter 22. I'll just read it to you. It says, the prophet said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will persuade King Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, in what way? So he said, I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, you shall persuade him and also prevail. Go out and do so. Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these prophets of yours. And the Lord has declared disaster against you. First of all, and I don't know that we usually start with this, but do you know who or what is meant by a spirit or a lying spirit or a perverse spirit? Most of the time, the commentaries just start off by talking about demons or fallen angels. But this text says it's a spirit. It doesn't seem to be a fallen angel. It doesn't seem to be a demon. It wouldn't help us if it was a demon because we don't even know what demons really are either. You know, the Bible never defines what a demon is. Is a demon a fallen angel? Typically, that's what we think. But if you start to, you know, compare them, Angels, they have corporeal bodies. They act a certain way. Demons are kind of skittish. Woo! Don't kick us out. Don't kick us out. And we'll go into the pigs. That'll be cool. We'll invent bacon. I don't know, you know, or whatever. But, and, and so a, a demon wants to be clothed with a body, and, and so they're different. And so the truth is, we don't know what this spirit is. We have no idea. We're just, God occasionally gives us a glimpse of heaven, to tell us what we need to know, and it says, a spirit came forward. And here's something even more interesting. Nowhere does it say it was an evil spirit, or that it was a satanic spirit, or anything like that. All we're sure of is that a spirit suggested to God a military strategy. And was it evil to try and put lies in the mouths of already lying prophets? Well, some of you military people could probably tell me stories of misinformation or disinformation, trying to get your enemy to think one way when you're going another way. Do you radio the enemy and say, hey, 
Our secret plans are to come right over the hill and shoot you. So be ready for us. Well, that would be the honest thing to do, right? And we want to be honest. Well, war changes things. This is a cosmic warfare. And God says, I need Ahab to die at Ramoth Gilead. What are we going to do about that? And he allows his subordinates in heaven to give some thought to it. And one finally says, I can do it. All you need to do is have his prophets lie, and he'll follow them and be killed. And God says, man, that sounds like a great strategy. And so I want you to think differently about this. We automatically, Christians are always on their heels. Oh, God sent an evil spirit. How could God do that? And they spend like 300 pages talking about that. This is war. And he didn't break the Geneva Convention or anything. This is just a, a strategy from heaven. This isn't even as bad as Satan being in heaven in Job chapters 1 and 2. And so nothing weird is going on here. In the next few verses, 16 through 24, in that day occurs six times. William MacDonald writes, the first 15 verses have already been fulfilled, but the rest of the chapter is still unfulfilled. And what that talks about down through verse 22 is that the Lord will first discipline Egypt and then he will heal them and they will be saved and come into a relationship with Israel. Uh, verse 23, in that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Now I heard some really bad news yesterday. You know, all this flooding and Tulare Lake and all of that. It's taken some of the property away from the high-speed rail. So I think that's going to be delayed now. <laughs> that's true, by the way. That's a true story. Uh, where are we? This is all mind-blowing futurist prophecy. I don't feel like... We can skip some verses because we, we read them earlier. And, and uh, the details here... You can get into the deep details, but what we need to know is that God uses nations... He disciplined Egypt, but in the end, Egypt will be in the kingdom uh, associated with Israel. He says, blessed is Egypt, my people, verse 25, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Israel, Egypt, and Assyria, which is modern-day Iraq, will be the three Mideast amigos. Uh, finish this thought. This will be a good meditation for you this week. A Jew, an Egyptian, and an Assyrian walked into the temple. What happens? Egypt and Assyria will be nations in the future kingdom. What about us? Well, we're in Bible prophecy, but only in the sense that every Gentile nation is. I keep quoting Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10. It, this, is, this is the answer to where is the United States. God told Jeremiah, the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit. And so the, uh, the question here isn't where is America in prophecy? The question is, are we doing good or evil in the sight of the Lord? And for all that we could cite that is good, and there's even some, some trends that are good, there's an awful lot of evil 
at the highest levels of our country. Uh, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, that's not what I'm talking about. There is just a lot of evil in our country. And I, I think, you know, it, it behooves God to, to withdraw his protection until we repent. Chapter 20, you're the messenger to the naked nations. Not unusual for God's prophets to dramatize prophecy. Ezekiel and Jeremiah did this. They had some wild events in their lives. But God really pushed the limits with Isaiah. And we read here that he is to remove, verse 2, the sackcloth from his body, take off his sandals, and walk naked and barefoot. And God says, do that for three years. Isaiah exchanged his normal business attire of sackcloth for his birthday suit. Yes, he was totally naked. The word means naked. You know how people say, no, this word can mean naked, nude, without clothing. Uh, you know, and now, critics, and people don't like that, they say, well, you know, come on. It's kind of a shame. It's, it's too radical to go around naked. So he must have had boxer shorts at least, you know, or, because otherwise it'd be too shameful. That's the point. That's the whole point. Isaiah comes out of his house nude. What are, what's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. In a short time, you're going to be naked, captive, drug away because of your sin. And, I mean, this is powerful stuff. And, and, and there's no watering down what was going to happen with the lack of repentance. And so, man, am I glad I was not born in the Old Testament and more glad that I'm not a prophet of the Old Testament. These guys, you talk about fools, these guys did what are crazy things. I mean, this is the equivalent of Solomon Eccles walking with a chafing dish on his head, burning naked through London, saying, repent. What, what do you really think when you see a person like that with the sandwich board sign? They're in all the dystopian movies, the old ones, anyone. The end is near, you know, and then the end happens. And, so, and you think, man, that person's crazy. I have a long story I could tell you about a crazy evangelist like that who turned out to be really right on and was preaching the gospel in ways that others weren't. But anyway, you know, so God can do things like that. And, and so naked, naked Isaiah, uh, man, rough times for the prophet. You know, I can't imagine the conversations he had with his wife. How was coffee today? Well, it's rough, you know. Some visiting Bedouins came through. But anyway, it's just crazy stuff. Unbelievers are slaves to sin and to Satan. They are very literally captives. And like all captive slaves, they are naked before God. No amount of this earth's goods can cover the kind of spiritual nakedness we are talking about. A lot of effort and energy goes into people trying to cover their nakedness. They don't realize that. They don't get, you don't get up in the morning as a non-believer and say, man, I'm just, I'm, I feel naked. I feel like God is looking at me and I'm naked, so I'm going to go do some good works. I'm going to do some philanthropy. I'm going to help a person. I'm going to pay it forward. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pay for the guy behind me's Starbucks. And God's going to say, oh, man. Wow, good deeds like that can't go unnoticed, especially if macchiatos are involved. You know, I mean, I, I don't want to belittle that, but I've never done that, and I've never had that done for me, and I think it's stupid. 
Uh, I just do. I mean, that's just me. This is not the Bible. You know, this is not part of the Bible study, but I paid for somebody's hamburger. They're in line. They have money for a hamburger, right? They're already in the drive-thru. They're not going to get to the drive-thru and say, hey, by any chance, did the guy in front of me pay for my lunch? Because if not, hopefully the guy behind me will, because I don't have any money at all. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> oh, shut up, Gene. <laughs> a naked person needs clothing. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, <laughs> hang on, give me a moment. He took upon himself your sin and shame. He died naked on the cross. People don't like that. He, oh, no, no, I've seen Jesus on the cross. He had a loincloth. He was naked. Your sin and shame he took, and he gives you his righteousness. That's how we go to heaven. And that is often illustrated in Scripture by Jesus giving you a beautiful white robe of righteousness, the garment of heaven. Uh, you know, think of it, I mean, this is a terrible illustration, but maybe you've been to places where you have to have some kind of ID hanging around your neck, and they say, okay, you're in, you're in, nah, you're, you know, not, not you and stuff, because you're not properly identified. To get into heaven, you need to have this robe of righteousness that is given to you spiritually when you receive Christ as your Savior. And when you have that, you are in. You're recognized by the Father as being in Christ, and you gain entrance into heaven. We're not called upon to walk around naked, of course, but God does ask us to go naked in the sense that we must be willing to bear his shame. Now, how does this work out? The Apostle Paul told us to follow him as he followed Jesus. He provides great examples for us as a, uh, you know, as a result. Arrested in the city of Philippi for preaching the gospel, thrown into the dungeon. The next day, the authorities of the city came to release him, and he said, oh, hey, by the way, guys, I probably should have told you this last night when you were beating me and imprisoning me. <laughs> I'm a Roman citizen. And everything you did was so illegal. I'm going to get you guys, right? And Silas, you know, being Silas hanging around Paul, you know, I wonder if Silas took Paul aside and said, hey, we're going into Philippi. Is this one of those I'm going to tell them I'm a Roman citizen situations or I'm not going to tell them? Because I might want to tell them. Uh, excuse me, did you know he's a Roman citizen? And so, you know, but Paul keeps his mouth shut. It apparently had uh, a, a great effect on establishing the church there at Philippi. Another time in his life, he says, I've had it with you guys. I want to go to Caesar. It's my right as a Roman citizen. And they said, all right, to Caesar you shall go. Paul did not always demand his rights. He didn't always surrender his rights. He was led by God in each situation to act in the way that would bring the most good attention to Jesus and to the gospel. Think of some of the situations in your life, past and present, at home, at work, whatever it would be, relationships, things like that, and ask yourself, here's the rule of thumb, what answer or behavior, what course of action is going to bring the most good attention to Jesus and to the gospel? I'm being sued, let's say, or I want to sue somebody. Is that going to bring the most good attention to the gospel and to Jesus Christ for two believers to be fighting it out in open court in front of non-believers? 
when Paul in one of his epistles said, guys, in the future you're going to judge angels. Why go to court? Just solve this among yourselves. Don't sue each other. And sure, go ahead. There, you know, we live in a great country and we have great rights and we need to take advantage of our rights. I'm not against that. I, I, I'm not an anti-rights person at all. But in your life, in your situations, if you are always, always going to demand your rights, your grievances, your course of action, whatever it might be, it, can you honestly, is that always the, the best course for the gospel? What are people going to think of Jesus and the power that you say you have through him? Sometimes you're going to have to act like a fool and bear his shame and, and have people think you're an idiot and a fool for the sake of the gospel. And so just ask, it's a simple question, what will bring the most glory to God? Because that's what you were created to do.